0: We are going through Philippians, and if you uh, were here last week, we we have these little cool uh, scripture journals, and this is yours to keep, and I hope you brought it back. If you happen to not take one or didn't bring one back in front of you in the chair, is one of these. And we're going to get these in a second. We're going to use this over the series um, to take notes and study scripture in kind of a fresh new way. So that is there. All right. So... Um, you may not know this about me, but I, uh, I grew up in Novato uh, right here. I'm a, a child of uh, Marin, salmon Mustangs, class of 93. And I grew up on Indian Valley Road. And I, you may not know this about me, but I actually grew up with horses. Like we were a family and we had horses. And uh, like I rode horses. I went to a couple rodeos. I team penned at the Novato Horseman's Club. I had big belt buckles. Uh, it was just for a season, but I was trying it out, you know. And, uh, and one summer, um, I uh, through some random connections, I worked at this horse ranch outside of Armstrong Redwoods in Guerneville. And uh, what that meant was for a couple weeks I lived with, with this weird ranching guy who, you know, they didn't use deodorant and they ate, you know, this is back organic food. I, there was, I was pre-organic days, Lauren, but back then I was like, what is this organic food all the time? And you could also use deodorant, total earthy people. And, uh, and they ran this business. And so in the morning I would like shuck hay, I don't know, is that, is that what it's called? I don't know, you get those big picks things that you see in like ax murderer movies and you would move hay and I was like growing my muscles. I'm like, yes, I'm becoming a man. And then in the afternoons we would go and people would pay to go on these horse rail trides through the Armstrong uh, Redwood. And I got to be a wrangler, and when you're a wrangler, you're like, like you know your stuff. You're helping these poor city folk who don't know how to ride, how to ride. And I knew like one little tiny bit more than them. And so, um, and so as we're riding, um, as, as we're doing this, what happened was. Um, it turned out there was this one horse. And uh, this one horse was the horse that I got for some reason. And they were having a hard time training this horse, paying attention. And so they put blinders on, on the horse. I don't know if you've may seen it at racetracks or whatever, but, you know, you put a, you, they, they put blinders on these horses. And, um, and what that does is that helps the horse only see what's in front of them, right? They don't get distracted by the world around them. They don't get distracted by flies and everything else. And they're like, you, we, we know you think you're a Wrangler, Ben, but you don't know how to really ride this horse. We're going to help you by putting... Um, Uh, these blinders on the horse, and I just hope that the other people didn't judge me that much. And uh, what's interesting about blinders on a horse is I often thought blinders are actually a really great thing, right? When you think of Scripture, fix your eyes on Christ. We want to be single-minded in our pursuit for Christ. There's so many distractions in the world. Wouldn't it be so great if we could just kind of put blinders on, figure out what we want to run after, and then run after it with all of our heart and guts? But that is actually not at all what it's like to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. The pictures that we get in Scripture are that sin is our master. Sin is our slave. Sin is the thing that blinds us. Sin is the thing that that hardens our heart. And God is the one who actually wants to take off our blinders. God is actually the one who wants to open up our heart, embrace our heart. That God is the one who wants to have us live in a full and abundant life. We're going to see later, even in the book of Philippians, where uh, we think, what does it mean to know Christ? We want to limit, 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 and single-minded in what we do and how we follow Christ. And then later in the book of Philippians, we're going to see, no, no, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent. Like, we have this whole world and life in front of us. And so what we want to recognize this morning is that most of us, well, probably not you, but I'm going to at least speak for me, we have these blinders on that when we look in the world, we see the world only through our perspective, And our perspective, unfortunately, is totally shaped by our own sin, by our own selfishness, by our own ego, and by our own pride. And the bummer is we are missing out totally on what it means to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to take a look at what it means to live this life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. So grab your little prayer journal and just thumb all the way over to page 10 until you get to a big number two. It's going to look like that. I already went ahead and wrote notes in mine so you'd feel like I was spiritual. And pretty soon by the end of the message today, you'll have some little scribbles in there too. So in chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is really the anchor. This is the centerpiece of the whole book of Philippians, that God is inviting us to be people for our entire lives, to live in such a manner that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of all this love and affection that God has poured on us, that we want to live a life worthy of that. So before we move on, let's talk really briefly about what in the world is this foundation of the Christian life? If you ask people around, you think, man, what is the foundation? What's the bottom line foundation of the Christian life? They're going to say, oh, it's simple. You know, it's hypocrisy, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. Any of those things are around, but we don't want those to be our foundation, right? As if we're around the church and we have a good self-sense of the church, right, we say the foundation is love, right? Love is the foundation. God loves us. And because God loved us first, we love one another. The, the number one commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. The second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love is the true foundation of the Christian life. I love that song, Reckless Love. Don't you love that song? That was a song we sang um, two songs ago. Uh, Molly crushed it. Listen to this. There's no, shadow you won't wa- sorry, There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's how the lyrics go. <laughs> they want to make sure you get the yeah in there. I like that. So here, here's what's crazy, though. God, right, he loves us. Here's where the message is going to ter- take a turn, though. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 2, it says, I give you a new commandment, that you are to love one another, not as you love yourself, but you are to love one another the way that I have loved you. We love that God loves us. We, we, we can listen to Rectal Love all day and be like, yes, God loves me. We love it. But there's, this, there's a transition that happens from being people who are embraced by God to now people who want to move towards Christ, people who want to be disciples of Christ, people who want to be followers of Christ. And that subtle turn comes from taking and absorbing all of God's love and then extending that to other people. We are called to love others the way that God loves us. I'm telling you what, you're not going to sing this song the same way. If you think of the person that you're having conflict with, you're thinking of your parents or your spouse or your kid or your boss, or who like you're thinking, hey, who's this person having conflict with? I'll tell you how. It's supposed to be overwhelming, never-ending. You're supposed to chase them down, fight till they're found, leave the 99. They can't earn it. They don't deserve it. Are you willing to give your life away to extend this overwhelming, never-ending precious love of God? (laughs) No. I mean, if we're honest, but Just because we're honest, this still doesn't mean that we are way wrong. And so this idea that we're going to look at as we go through Philippians is that is the call. You want to know what it means to move towards Christ. You want to know what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, to clarify this walk with God. This is is where the wheels come off. Everyone loves that God loves us. The second you say, now, what does that mean is where the wheels come off. But we are committed to wrestling with God's word. We're committed to owning our hypocrisy and judgmentalism and self-righteousness, because if we don't, we'll never make steps towards Christ. So we're going to step into this. Every word that comes out of my mouth is going to make me feel and seem like I'm a hypocrite. Um, but we're going to lean into it just a little bit more. So here we are. We're going to take a look at starting in um, chapter 2, verse 1. So if, the, if it says this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is now the beginnings of how and why we're supposed to do that. So it's, Paul begins like this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection, and any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul's beginning to say, okay, how do you live this life worthy of the gospel? Well, let's start with this. If, it's an if-then statement, right? There's a ton of these, like, if you don't do your work, you're going to get fired, if you save some money, if I save just 50 bucks a month, I can buy this surfboard that I want, right? If I'm kind to my wife, she might want to hold my hand more, right? Like there's certain things like if they do things, then this. There's my all-time favorite song, right? If you're happy and you know it, then you will clap your hands, right? There's these certain things. If these things happen, they're these conditional phrases, then this happens. And so Paul's trying to say, listen, in normal logic, if you've encountered Christ— at some point, if you've encountered Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you've actually experienced this encouragement in Christ. If you've experienced this comfort from His love, if you've experienced this participation in the, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if you've been singing reckless love and you're like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that God loves me in this way. If you've had any of these moments where God is close to you, then that's the hard part, right? Then. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. If you've experienced these things to be true, then be like Christ. Experience, to be the body of Christ. Live in unity as the body of Christ. And if you ever tried to live in unity with anybody, if you've ever been in a relationship with anybody for more than five seconds, you know that that is a costly thing. And what, Jesus, what Paul's saying is that if you've encountered Christ Well, then then the result is that we should become more and more like the body of Christ, sharing the same mind and the same spirit and the same love. That all still sounds pretty good. But then he clarifies what he means. Like I said, every verse from here on out is just so impossible. Verse 3. So what does it mean to have the same mind, to to be in full accord? Okay, here we go. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. I'm just going to read this one more time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I love it. Paul says you should have this posture of humility. And what's so funny is, being around the church, I feel like in the last five years or so, there's this new definition of humility. And it's not new, um, but it goes back to what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says this, this is humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. That sounds pretty good, right? It's C.S. Lewis. We love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is saying, hey, 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 humility, don't, don't be ragging on yourself. Don't think you're less than. Have a really good, noble sense of yourself, but just think of yourself less. It's a good little quip. The bummer is that is not what this passage is teaching at all. We want in our good suburban Christian home who, uh, who we are all about self-fulfillment and self, um, yeah, to be the live the abundant life that God has called for us. Humility just means that we need to have a most, a, a noble sense of ourselves, right? Yep, we're made in the image of God. We've been given all these gifts and we want to present those gifts to the world. I mean, yes, and then, you know, to serve others with them. But that is not this passage, what he's talking about. In humility, it doesn't say just think of yourself, think of, of yourself less. Um, it says this. Count others more significant than yourself. Look to the other's interest above yourselves. Gosh, that is really hard. Imagine this. What does it mean to count others more significant than yourself? So that's not just simply thinking of yourself less. That means in every interaction that you're having with someone, what does it mean that that person actually has more significance than you? We Marin people do not like that. We are about our rights. We are about our justice. Boy, but Jesus is like, well, you want to really know what it means to know me? You want to know what a clarifying walk towards Christ means? You want to know what it means to have a reckless love towards others, well, then you think of other people less, looking to the other interests above your own. And here's what's impossible. I realized because I have blinders on, I don't even know what other people's interests are. I think I do because I'm looking at my my blinder. I'm like, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. And it turns out I can go through my whole day and not even see one other person. And I'm thinking I'm crushing it because I'm living my life in my blinders, in my selfishness, in my pride, doing just fine, steamrolling everybody. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You need to take off your blinders, see other people, and now consider others above yourself. Look to their interest and not your own. We did this thing with our staff a month ago. We brought in um, a specialist and we did empathy training. Here's a pro tip for you. Don't do empathy training with your spouse in the same room. (laughs) So we do empathy training. And empathy training, right, empathy is basically how do you—trying to feel what the other person is feeling. That is so hard. It's so hard for someone to express something, for someone, I mean, I know when like I know when someone's really mad at me, I know when Kay's really mad at me, but to just normal life, like normal life, how do you experience someone's emotions? And empathy is basically taking off your blinders, stepping out of yourself and trying to figure out what's going on with them. What are they feeling? When have I ever felt something like that? When I felt something like that, how do I respond? How do I want to be you know, treated when I've been uh, felt that way? And then how do I treat that person based on how they're feeling? Gosh, that's impossible. For like a knuckle-dragger, non-emotionally whole person, that is a hard, hard thing. And to listen to this training and have my wife sit right next to me the whole time go, hmm. <laughs> it's hard work, right? But that's what Jesus calls to Humility, the true humility, is actually stepping out, taking off our blinders, considering others more significant than yourself. We all naturally think of ourselves as so significant. We're so significant. We're so important. We're so offended when things don't go our way. But the call of Christ, discipleship, this meaty Christianity that Jesus is inviting us to, to be the kingdom of God, on earth as it is in heaven are people who are postured to extend the reckless love of God to other people, not the people who sing it the best, but the people who extend it the best. And I know if you're anything like me, I read that passage of Scripture and I have a million reasons why that's not okay. I mean, I've been to the Solutions class. I've read that book, Boundaries. No, no, no. We only sort of have to extend um, grace and mercy to other people. But before we get too excited about that, before we come up with all of our reasons why we can't, Paul just kicks the door totally down because he he goes on to say this. The reason why you do this, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, how in the world do we, as followers of Christ, people who know and love God and get that God loves us, loves us, loves us, what is the thing that's supposed to motivate us? How are we supposed to actually get to take those blinders off and be people? who are willing to love others with this extravagant love to see others is more significant. I love Paul. He goes, well, it's simple. You say you're followers of Christ. Well, then follow Christ. How do you do it? You have the same mind of Christ. And then he goes into this incredible theology. This, most most uh, commentators think this little passage of Scripture is a hymn. It's a song that the, the, the church would sing to teach them about who Jesus was. 30 years after the death of Christ, like in just a generation and a half, the Christian church landed on this incredible theology, on the preexistence of Christ, right? that says that, um, which is yours in Christ, who though he was God, so there is this Jesus who was God, did not count himself equality with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The incarnation is God who sits in heaven deserves all honor, all glory. The angels themselves can't even look at God, right? The seraphim, they have wings all over their eyes and body they're like, and they're just singing, holy, 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 holy. That's God's normal state. And Jesus is like, I'm going to earth. And he leaves being worshiped by all of creation. He empties himself and he comes to earth. There's a, it, it says empty. The Greek word for that is kino. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it, but they, there's this whole writing about it, the kenosis theory. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Because what Christian theologians have come up with is that Jesus is fully God in his very nature, in his divine attributes. He is fully God, and yet he emptied himself. He somehow gave up certain things, and theologians have been you know, fighting forever and ever about what exactly he gave up, gave up. his all, being all-powerful, being all-knowing, being all omnipresent. Um, what, what did he give up? Well, what we do know is he gave up a lot, and for sure he gave up his rights. If, if the only thing that we get for sure is that he gave up his rights. He who was God gave up his right to become human, So not only was He pre-existent, not only did He come in the Incarnation, but He came as a servant. He says He came as a slave. He served the people around them. He served them to the point of death. And not just a normal death, like a noble death would be awesome, right? Yes, I'm going to die for this thing, but the death on the cross, the most humiliating, most ugly, grossest, worst death possible, right? And so Jesus, who was God, emptied Himself to become a servant even to the point of death. And you think, I deserve so much more. I walk into every room and I know what I deserve. I know what I deserve. And it is a brutal thing to think God in the form of Jesus, who is the most important person in every room, walked into every situation who was fully God, deserved full worship, full attention, full obedience. And in every situation, He gave of Himself. And so not only are we supposed to have good theology, we're also to follow the example of Christ. And what I love about Jesus is is I'm willing to die for certain people. I don't know if you're like that, right? There's certain people that feel like a really good, noble investment. I'm like, okay, for you, I'm willing to give you extended mercy, extended grace. I'm willing to go all the way to the mats for you over and over and over again. And I feel like the Apostle John was that person. Like John was an incredible Apostle, right? And Jesus um, would be like, "I'm going to the cross because John's awesome." And even John writes, like, you know, your favorite uh, disciple. So for John, that's super great. But Jesus didn't just do this, serve John. Jesus served Judas. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Like that's gnarly. That is something that I don't want to think about. What does it mean to know and to love and to serve not just the people who I know are good investments, but the people who are working against me, the people who are crushing my soul, to serve them? Um, I don't know if you remember this guy, um, Alec Daly. He was a part of our church a long time ago, and he was... Um, part of our youth group. And, uh, and as he was growing up in our youth ministry, he was like, I think God's calling me to children's ministry. And so he'd like, be like, Ben, I'm not coming to youth group. I'm going to children's ministry. And he would just be a part of children's ministry. And he would love children and love children's ministry. And he went to college to do, um, to figure out um, early childhood education. And now he lives in Denver and uh, he works for Head Start. And I was talking to him. And what's interesting is in Head Start, um, you have all these kids Right, who are coming from all these wacky backgrounds, and they have to come and in, into these classrooms and you're trying to teach them how to live and behave in like a normal civilized world in the classroom. And you're trying to get kids to sit in a circle and write their name on a paper, and it is just a total circus. And there's all sorts of ways in which you can help that happen, right? You can like drop the hammer on those poor on those poor kids, you can punish them, you can limit them, you can try to reward them. Well, in the last, I don't know how long, new to me, but not new to, to my friend Alec, he's like. I've been reading this stuff, and it's been changing my life, and I think you should be aware of it, and it's called Trauma-Informed. And what trauma-informed is, is saying, all these kids who are showing up at Head Start, they're not not sitting in a circle because they hate your guts. They're not not sitting in a circle because they're disrespecting you or disobeying you or have something to prove. There is so much trauma that's happened in their life. They can't even begin to think about why in the world they're going to sit in a circle, and what's crazy is they've, be, they've started at that starting point and now have created a whole different environment, a whole different curriculum, a whole different posture towards these kids so that they can help them. They can see them for who they've been and help them become these whole kids so they can engage in this education process. And I think for us, I mean, that's exactly Jesus' posture, right? He came to earth while we were sinners, while we were broken, while we were causing trauma to one another, while we were experiencing trauma, that we couldn't even begin to get our head and heart around who Jesus is or was. And Jesus goes, okay, you poor kids. You have no idea what's going on with with you. And so I'm going to love you, and I'm going to walk with you. And it's going to take some of you 80 years. Some of you, it's going to take all the way to the last second just to barely barely have a sense of what's going on. Jesus fully gets our trauma. And I think what a helpful thing for we as a church, if we look at people, especially people we disagree with, people who are in conflict with, people who are struggling with, and go, okay, there's stuff that's going on in your life that I can't even get my head around. One of the joys of being a pastor of this church is getting to be here long enough and getting to know many of your stories, getting to know many of your backstories, many of your deep, dark backstories, Right? And I'm like, oh my goodness, isn't God so gracious to you and to me? And no wonder that's like that. And no wonder you're having a problem with this. And no wonder what I said just set you off right there. Like, oh my goodness. But when we only have our blinders on, when we only see the world through our life, through our story, through our ego, through our hurt, there's no way that we can have empathy towards one another. There's no way that we can love one another the way that we are actually called to love one another. And it is costly. If we're going to follow the, Christ, the example of Christ, it costs Jesus everything. Everything. It is costly. There's no way to get around it. And because we're humans, we want to know well, there's got to be some benefit, right? At some point, God's going to go, hey, good job, right? Well, it's true, but it's not when we want it to be, unfortunately. It says verse 9 at the end of this Therefore, that God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name above that is every other name, so the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That At the end, there is a time that Jesus, even though he came as a suffering servant, even though he died uh, on the cross, even though he's asking us to do the same, that Jesus is still God. Jesus is still the person who is worthy of all worship. Jesus is still the one that all humanity is going to bow down and worship and say, you are Lord. Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord. All of creation is going to get there. We don't need to make it happen. We don't need to force it to happen. But God will take care of it at the end of time. And what a different thing when we begin to have an eternal perspective, when we recognize that what God is inviting us to do, the cost that God is calling us, if we're going to have this reckless love towards one another, then we also have the need to have this example of Christ, that he has an eternal perspective, which means this is going to cost me. And it may not get me a raise, and it may even not win me their affection. It may not do anything I need it to do. That's not love, right? That's doing something to make it work for me. But trusting that in eternity, God sees it. God knows about it. He's going to make it all right. And when we love people like that, we are partnering with the love of Christ. We are actually the hands and feet of God's love for the other part. Okay, I want to end with one quick story. Because the question is, how do you do it? And so here's the hard part. When I was in college, I lived with this house of guys, there was 12 of us, and um, if if you ever lived with a house of guys or a guy, we suck at doing dishes. And it's not a sexist thing, it's just I think we have a, a low threshold of cleanliness. Um, it turns out if I just scrape out some of the mac and cheese residue, um, you know, I'll be good to go for my next meal. I went backpacking with this high school kid, and every meal he, he didn't clean out his, his little cup that he ate out of. It just kept growing. And by the end of our week-long backpacking trip, you know, he had this tiny amount of space for food because he had, like, layers. It's just how we're wired. It's, it's unfair. I get that. But when I was in college, I mean, this was 25 years ago, And it was probably one of the most shaping things I've ever heard. And it was very simple. The guy was basically saying, you want to love others the way that Jesus loved you. But really, you always want someone to take care of you. So every single time you leave something at the sink, you are basically saying, somebody else is going to serve me. Sorry, Foof. Like I said, I'm a hypocrite all the way through, all day. But is that gnarly? If every single time you leave something at the sink, you are basically communicating, somebody else is going to take care of this for me. When I leave my clothes on the chair, I'm saying to Katie, thank you for, 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 for serving me in this way. Right? I walk into the bathroom here at church and there's stuff scattered on the floor and I, don't, and I leave it there. I'm going, oh, thank you, Daryl or Hector, or someone not me who will serve me someday, right? When I'm driving down a church and someone zips in front of me or I zip in front of them or I see a parking spot that's right up close, I'm like, ah, oh, thank you, somebody else who gets to serve me this morning. Like our natural posture is we are entitled people who long to be served by other people. And to apply this passage of Scripture, to apply the passage of Scripture to love others, the way that Christ loves us, it can look a whole variety of ways. But I just wanted to give you one tiny little thing, and maybe God will take that one tiny little thing that's not too offensive and will allow that to grow into full-blown fruit. So just think of your home, one tiny place. When you put something on the counter, you are saying, thank you for serving me, as opposed to looking around and seeing opportunities that you can serve other people. We start with the little things, and it's the accumulation of all those little things that tune our hearts, that tune our spirits, so that we can then can love others the way that Jesus loved us. And we do it because we follow Christ's example, who was in the very nature God, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and he obedient even to the point of death, even to the point of death, And at the very end, God will lift him up and every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so may we begin to honor Christ with our very small and simple things. Amen and amen.